0: Hello, and welcome to co cast where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back for part two of our two-part discussion with Jamie Stegmeier. In part one, we discussed time stories and our top five about that. So if you haven't listened to that yet, please go back and listen to last week's episode 31. It's awesome. This week we are going to be having our design discussion where we talk about narrative in cooperative games, or in board games in general. And also make sure to stay tuned, near the end of the episode, Jamie tells a little bit more about that Scythe expansion that's coming out this year at Gen Con. Before we get into the full episode, though, we had a little bit of feedback on last week's episode— Nathan Davis from Twitter mentioned that we had no quantum leap reference, and yeah, we should have talked about that. It's funny, we got into so many discussions of what we could do with this time travel that we didn't really get into the heart of what it was. Time Stories itself is designed around this quantum leap mechanic, if you will, where you're jumping back into the bodies of people during that time period, and we didn't talk about it once during last week's episode. So I did want to make sure to bring that up and thank Nathan for bringing that to our attention. Something else that was brought to our attention is of Dyson Men left us a comment on SoundCloud about a two player variant. So I know Mike said he was very disappointed with the way it played at two players and said he was thinking about coming up with something to maybe make it a little bit easier to play as a two player game. Well, Rado has already done that, and I will post a link to that BGG thread in the show notes of this episode. So make sure to look for that too, if you're interested in a better way to play time stories as a two-player game. And I just want to thank Nathan and of Dyson Men again. Please feel free, share your insights with us, share your thoughts on each episode with us. We will certainly make sure to respond, and we'd love to make this a reoccurring feature at the beginning of our episodes where we respond to your feedback. But with no further ado, enjoy the episode and the design discussion with Jamie Stegmeier. All right, so let's get into that design discussion. I think we've mentioned the word story enough times when describing time stories that you probably have a pretty good idea that we're going to talk about narrative in games. So Jamie, as our guest, why don't you get us started? What is your thought about narrative in board gaming? I think about narrative in two different
1: ways. One is, I guess, more of the Time Stories way of having a set story that players are experiencing, Mm -hmm. maybe in a unique order, like in Time Stories, but it's a a written story that they are experiencing. And then there's the other type of narrative, which is more player-driven. The story is the players are telling through the choices they make in the game. That's
2: the overarching idea of how I think about narrative. Is, Is that similar to how you guys view it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Especially for mystery games, because I think they lend themselves to this the best, where there is a complete narrative, but it is your job to find the pieces, put together the pieces, and potentially miss some of the pieces and even miss some parts of the narrative. Yeah, so I'm I'm with you on kind of the general classifications there. And I think to some degree, writing the story
0: isn't easy, but it is easy to make a narrative-based game where you are writing the story and it is kind of a linear path for the players. It is harder to design mechanics so good that the players are coming up with their own story and really feeling like they are in that story. Yeah, I agree. That's very difficult.
1: Can you think of some examples of games that do that really well?
2: Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think games are helped by, of course, a strong theme in the game overall, but Especially for me, I know strong flavor text and sort of uh, things that immerse you in the world within the gameplay elements will kind of encourage the players and give license to them to create their own stories. So uh, go and decide. You know, you have the, the sort of like little quest cards with choices to be made. So first of all, you feel like your empire is more individualized and your hero is more individualized by the choices you are making, by the morality that you are kind of creating for yourself, which I think will encourage players to play a part more. You know, when you put role-playing elements into a game, it gives the players license to bring those characters to life. Yeah, I would say uh, Dead of Winter, I think, does this really well. Because, yes, you have, like, these specific cards that are entirely keyed to your characters that very rarely might come out in the Crossroads deck. But absent those, you have your objective that kind of gives you some flavor for your character. So, you know, I know when I've played that game sometimes, if my character is addicted to some horrible substance, then sometimes I'll make choices. You know, if it's not good for the game, it's like, ah, this is what my character would do. Mm You know, and I do think cooperative games or competitive games that aren't like on the heaviest end of the spectrum or don't take like three hours to play lend themselves to that sort of free role playing more and that free creation of narrative more because there's not as much on the line. You know, if you're playing like a four hour game and you make some boneheaded decision because that's what your character would have done, (laughs) that's going to be really hard to encourage players to do that. But if you've got strong theme already and it's the kind of game that's a little bit lighter or cooperative in nature where everyone's going to forgive you or even enjoy your choice doing that, that could be great. Yeah,
0: there are two that kind of jump to my mind. Number one is Betrayal at House on the Hill. We kind of started talking about this already where, yes, there is a story. This story, it might be one person's a vampire or somebody's a werewolf or something else. But that story isn't really written for you. After that, you're living those moments where somebody's chasing you down. And I think anytime fear comes into the game and anxiety come into the game, I think that is something that does drive story and something that you will remember. Anytime you can, I guess, even elicit any kind of emotional response from a player, then that's something that they're going to be more likely to remember and share that story and kind of come up with their own story of how things happened and it'll be very clear and vivid in their mind. Another game we talked about earlier is Alien Encounters. That game you are reliving the alien movies, but the part that sticks out most to me in that game is those emotional scare moments. Oh do you remember when we were almost at the end and then this face hugger jumped out and like came out in my deck and you know we lost right there at the end. So sometimes those moments can be good, sometimes they can be bad, but at least they elicit a response and they elicit a story that you'll remember down the road. And I think those are the kind of games that are going to be the most memorable where the story isn't just written out for you. How about you Jamie, do you have any uh, specific examples that jump to your mind? Yeah, yeah,
1: and, and Specifically, almost in terms of like events that happen in cooperative games versus encounters that you can have in competitive games. I think the key difference there is that in the competitive game, you, you have at least some semblance of choice, even if though the, the encounter or the event is random. And Scythe, I think, is actually even though it's my own game, I think it's a decent example of that.
2: No, it, it is. It is. You, you, you can you can be humble, but also take credit for it. <laughs>
1: It, it was, I molded the encounters. If you haven't played side, there are these encountered cards that you draw and Usually it's only maybe two or three a game that you draw them. And you're faced with three options. One is where you can be kind. One is where you can be kind of economic and, and smart. And the last one is you can just be mean and in a comical way. And it's your choice. You're not rolling the die to determine which one of those you get. You are in control of which one of those you choose. There's usually a cost and a, and a benefit. And so I think that works for cooperative games. In competitive games, and I, and I think a, a key example here is the game Summit. Have you guys played Summit? mm No, I haven't. Summit is a mountain climbing game that is both... It can be cooperative or competitive. We're not at the same time, but you can either play two different game modes. I've only played it cooperatively, and I don't really want to play it competitively because of the events. The events are fantastic in the cooperative mode. And one of the first games I played... We were it was five am in the morning. we had just started our climb on the mountain, and I drew an event card that said that I got really hungry and ate my sherpa and I've never <laughs> forgotten about that because it's such an outlandish time to get hungry and decide to go all out for the food and go cannibal early on in the game and that was fun and, and funny as a group. If that had been the competitive mode though, that would have been really frustrating because I need that sherpa like i would I would still remember <laughs> it, but in a frustrating way instead of a uh, A silly comical memorable way
0: sure yeah it's funny any game that does that both cooperative and competitive we i mean part of the reason we don't cover them here so these semi-co-op games is i mean you're either semi-co-op in the fact that you always have a trader or you're not and that's one thing that's always kind of jumped out at me is it's really hard to balance a cooperative game but then if you throw in the element of you may or may not have a trader it really is hard. And if you don't care about balance, that's fine. And if you just want the to experience the story, that's fine. But it's really hard to balance it so that it can be both played cooperatively and competitively. And I think that Summit example is a perfect example. What's so great about one is doesn't work in the other. And if you're going to try to make it work for both, you almost have to have this middle ground. And sometimes that feels like it doesn't have a soul when you play it.
2: Yeah. So I wanted to kind of bring up Thinking about what I was saying earlier, I think narrative often comes out in terms of like a role-playing aspect when players sort of empathize with and can even put themselves in their character's shoes. And we've talked about this in a previous episode a bit, but what jumps out at me at the moment that kind of is one of the strongest ways to do that is the idea of kind of semi-permanent or permanent bonuses and or hindrances for characters and especially hindrances And this is something that a lot of modern RPGs have also kind of picked up on. Like, they'll either require you to or reward you heavily for giving your character negative traits. You know, it's kind of like looking at an interesting character in a movie. For me, at least, the characters that stick out are the ones that have major flaws. Like, Indiana Jones is a much more exciting hero because he is afraid of snakes, because he is not perfect in that way, because he makes mistakes and leads the Nazis to the treasure in some cases. Whereas a character that's sort of a perfect paragon of awesomeness in every way is basically no character at all. And I think a lot of games have that. And if a game gives you some negative traits, you know, I'm thinking of Eldritch Horror, like, you know, you're always in debt or you have a broken leg or you're poisoned. Like those kind of things can potentially give you a way to play your character more. Now, on the other side of things that is a bit similar, I really respect game designs, competitive or cooperative, and this is found story again, not uh, set story. And I think Sentinels of the Multiverse, which we reviewed recently, does this pretty well with the environment deck. But I think games where the environment changes in a way that is different from game to game, like, you know, this part of the world is blown up or this part of the world is invaded and now it's harder to go through there. I think that really creates the, uh, the verisimilitude, the realism of the world And again, that's going to lend you when you feel just like when you feel like you have a real character, you're going to kind of build narratives out of that feeling. When you feel like you have a real world to inhabit, you're going to have an easier time building your own narratives. And again, none of this is talking about narratives that are just written out for you, because I think that's more kind of obvious how that can work. And if you get the combination of both, like you feel like you're a character and you feel like you're in a breathing world, it's going to be different the next time you play it. Uh, I think that's just a a kind of golden bullet of narrative design within a design space that is not entirely focused on a pre-generated narrative. One, I think the game that does that the best is actually a
0: cooperative game, Robinson Crusoe, Hmm. where you experience something now,
2: and then later on, it may or may not come back to bite you. Yeah. No, that's a good call. Yeah, the idea that a tiger attacked, and now I'm going to make gameplay choices realistically with my character... That will prepare me for that tiger potentially coming back because that world is alive. Yeah, no, that's a good call. Yeah, so I mean, I think that is something to strive for,
0: in all honesty, something where you can make the world feel living and breathing. And and Jamie, I know you did a great job of this with side. That's actually one of the ones examples I was going to use earlier. First of all, evocative through the artwork, but also those choices you make each kind of have like a dialogue associated with them. It, It makes that world feel alive, like it's moving and breathing even if you're not in that part of the world or it gives you a picture or a glimpse of that part of the world. And I think that games can do that. And really, I mean, that's why we play games, right? Is to escape our day-to-day lives. You know, you wouldn't play a game about being an accountant probably.
2: Well, I don't know. Uh, You might take some euros and say you're playing that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, certainly there's that, but we're talking about story here
0: and, and narrative. And if Agricola actually felt like you were being a farmer, nobody would probably play that game. I'm not going out making <laughs> up my backyard every time I play Agricola and bringing rocks in and, you know, putting them down on the table. That's a good point. Certainly that's a way to instill narrative in your game, but I think anything that you can give players an emotional attachment to is really, you know, or a physical attachment. Anything that gets your adrenaline running, I think really is what brings people into into that narrative even more and makes it that memorable years later.
2: And, you know, Jamie, I, I feel like this is something that's on your mind frequently, just looking at side then Charterstone, I feel like does this as well, like gives you this breathing world that changes based on your choices and sometimes not based on your choices. So is that, I mean, is that a design philosophy you go into with all your games or, or like at least try to instill when you can in all your games? I've tried to do it
1: more and more like with viticulture, there really isn't, like it's set in, there's a specific setting and a theme, but there really isn't a narrative. I guess, I mean, the idea is you're running a vineyard that your your parents gave to you. But since then, I've tried to add a lot more stories. So it, it, in Euphoria, there's a specific story. There, there's, mm-hmm. there's narrative elements <laughs> in that. Um, same with uh, with Scythe, like you mentioned, and, and Charterstone has, Charterstone has a mix of the two. Because in Charterstone, I wanted players to be able to tell their own story through permanent decisions. Well, there's the naming like that that, that's memorable and fun, and then there's the, which is not unique to Charterstone, that came from other legacy games, but also the idea of building um, buildings on the board. And I found, like I played my Charterstone campaign with my group about eight months ago, and every now and then I pull out the board and just look at it, and it's remarkable to me that I can remember these different stories that we told, like when one player placed a building that wasn't, that didn't originally belong to their charter, and something it's part of their charter, and it, it means this one thing to them, and, and it's part of our story of Charterstone. And I found that in a bunch of legacy games. So I really like what you said about the, the world itself changing, the setting changing, and how that can impact the, the narrative of your group.
2: Now, we, we should probably discuss briefly what we think are maybe better and worse ways to do a sort of more scripted narrative. Because I think we've mostly talked about kind of like the found narrative that you can instill in a game and the narrative in a game that is not entirely based on a narrative. I'll say first that mystery, like mysteries and the mystery genre does lend itself, I think, most strongly. Just because a game must distinguish itself from a book. You know, and probably choose your own adventures are the closest to just being a book, it's just you choose when to read through it. So I think the mystery elements and again like finding pieces of the story and perhaps missing others, and as Peter said, finding your own sequence of the story elements, like what order do you learn the story, what you know it's almost like what order you read the chapters of a book, which clearly you couldn't do with a real book or you'd be incredibly confused. I think that's why the mystery genre lends itself to narrative. But can you all think of, like, fully narrative games that are not mysteries? Because I'm not sure I can.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, Pandemic Legacy Season 1, I mean, it's not not fully narrative. You know, we've talked about Season 2. We never really got into Season 1. I think Season 1, the reason it was number one on BGG for so long, is because, you know, people have played Pandemic. They know the base game of Pandemic. But the story in that, because it was more of a linear story, and they could have those moments that you just remember. And and for me, this is what keeps coming back, is you have to have memorable moments for you to remember a game. Like the first time AJ played Salvation Road, he always tells a story about he and Chris Kirkman going in and like... They could have chose to leave without Kirkman and his character would have died but instead <laughs> and they would have won the he, game. <laughs> he yeah, they would have won the game but they wasted some of their fuel to go back and get that guy and they you know, they didn't end up needing that fuel that they used but he could have lost the game because he was playing the hero of that game. He he risked the entire party for saving one character because he's like no one's getting to get left behind on my watch and you know, he made that moment real for him and for everybody, and I think those are the moments that stick out in your mind, and, you know, I wasn't even part of that game. Just hearing that story made me remember it years later. I mean, how long has Salvation Road been out now? So, <laughs> yeah, you know, that game was signed probably four or five years ago when they had that story, and it still sticks out in my mind. And so I think having these moments, and there were definitely those, I don't want to spoil Pandemic Legacy Season 1, but the reason it sticks out in my mind more so than Season 2, which I'm playing through right now, is that they had those moments in there. They had those moments where, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened, or oh my gosh, I can't believe they took this story and went that way with it. So I think whether it's something that gets created through the gameplay itself, or whether it's created through these rich stories, I think you have to have these plot twists. Look at the best movies. Look at your favorite movies. There's probably a moment in there where there's a plot twist that you either weren't expecting or knew it was coming, but it still wrenched at your heart anyway.
1: Yeah, and those, bringing up those games I think is an interesting example because of the, the linearity of Season 1. And I think they heard from a lot of people a, that they really enjoyed it. But I think they heard from some people at least that they wanted a little bit more control over uh, – well, not control. They wanted it to be less linear. They wanted more, more paths, which they, they did I think quite brilliantly in Season 2. But it is it ends up being less memorable as a result.
2: yeah. That's a really interesting conundrum. And again, I think that's why mysteries work best because, you know, Time Stories has one story, like in a given scenario. I know exactly what happened in Marcy's case. Now you need to look at the other cards. I got it. I got the entire narrative right there. I'm done. But I still feel like I found my way in my own individual way. So it's still a strong, memorable narrative. Yeah.
0: I do think there is one more game that does a very good job, and it goes on that mystery aspect you were talking about, or horror aspect, is Arkham Horror, the card game. Yeah. That is an interesting combination of a linear story. You're going to go from mission 1 to mission 2 to mission 3, but there are choices you can make that will still affect the next mission. So it's got both sides of that. It's got a little bit of... This is our scripted story, but it also has the I am making choices that are affecting what happens in the next mission. So I think there is a way to combine a narrative story and emergent story all in one game. But I think it's certainly more of a challenge design wise.
2: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, Peter, because our current uh, main co-op design, we're trying to do exactly that. And my brain is breaking a bit, like just in the initial state is like, hey, we're going to make this happen. Somehow, we will make this happen. (laughs) Because uh, what Arkham Horror LCG does well is it has a lot of toggles to switch and turn and spin. So you can have, like, very varied movement through the campaign. And I think it is a challenge to have good gameplay and a narrative that involves variety and choice. And efficiency and simplicity in the design at the same time you know like i think uh some of those things are kind of directly in contrast to each other because it's tough for the player choices to feel like they actually matter if you don't have mechanical consequences to their choices but then to give enough variety for those choices to be interesting you need to have enough mechanics that the variety can be present there so yeah anyway i kind of lost my train there but yeah it's, it's definitely a challenge uh i've only played that once and I'm curious to see, to play
1: it again, maybe play the second scenario after you guys have said this, because it, it reminded me of both, uh, of like Eldritch Horror, in that mm-hmm. I felt like the game was playing me more than mm-hmm. I was playing the game. And it's a very well-written s- story that's happening to me, but I didn't feel like I had enough agency and control over my decisions. And But I wonder now that you guys are saying this, that maybe that's just the self-contained first story and then... If I had played the next scenario, maybe I would have seen some of
2: those choices matter in the future. Did, did you just play literally the first scenario in the house? Yeah. Yeah, so that's... I would almost call that a tutorial because it very much holds your hand. Even in the second scenario, the map opens up ridiculously. Okay. And then if you really get into Dungeons Legacy or uh, Path to Carcosa, the two like longer campaigns they've come out with now, those have a lot more choice in the narrative... They sometimes have choice for how you'll even accomplish your tasks, like there's a gambling scenario in The Dunwich Legacy, like in a casino, and you can do things quite differently in parts of that scenario. You know, kind of akin to like a video game, like violent or stealthy approach, like a lot of games do, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, not saying you need to play the game, there's certainly more than enough amazing co-ops on the market to play it, but... Yeah, I mean, it's one of my tops of all time, so I would say if you get a chance, try out at least the second scenario and you'll see that there is more there than the first scenario might imply. Awesome.
1: Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. I, I will try that.
2: Yeah, it's funny
0: because we've talked about this too. How do you create a tutorial for your game that limits players' choices enough that they don't get frustrated, mm-hmm. but yet is satisfying enough and shows you enough of what the game has to offer that people don't just put it down and say, well, there's just not enough here for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I think, again, sorry to keep up bringing up Charterstone, but we've been playing a lot recently. I think you did a nice job with the very first mission of Charterstone, primarily because it's so darn fast. You know, like, I think we were done that scenario with three players in, what, Peter, maybe like 30 minutes, 40 minutes? Oh, yeah.
0: It was definitely one of those,
2: all right, set it up, we're playing Mission 2, and this was at the end of a long gaming night. This wasn't, like, our first game of the night. That's right. And I, th- I think that's probably the ideal to go for. If you are doing a tutorial to ease players into the mechanics of the game, make it as short as you can so that it really becomes like game point 0.5, you know, and then you really play scenar- the next scenario kind of immediately in the same sitting if you can. Which I don't know if Arkham LCG accomplished that because the first scenario is not long, but it's certainly not short either. Well, not only
0: that, but then the setup you have to do for the second scenario, you have to go in and dig out the different locations and all of that. So it it doesn't, I mean, the board in something like a Charterstone is already set up there in front of you. It's very easy to shuffle up the cards and and start up again.
1: There's one other type of narrative that I I just want to bring up real quick. I think you guys have talked about it before on your podcast, but uh, the situations where you end up acting... Uh, in fact, you did give an example of this, where, where the Chris Kirkman example, where they went in to save right. him, even though it wasn't like mechanically or logically the right decision. I think those are like beautiful moments of immersion in games, where, where you make a decision based on your character or the situation, even though it doesn't make sense. And the
2: the I have a Euro game example of this. Have you played Pursuit of Happiness? Ooh, I, I'm very interested in it. I've not played it yet, but I've read the whole rule book, watched uh, play examples, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's a you know it's a game about uh, living a life essentially.
1: And in more so than in any other Euro game that I've played, I was making decisions based on what I thought my character wanted, which is really weird and fun and I, I really like that aspect um, that I was looking at what my character wanted and doing that. I guess it happened in fog of love a little bit too, but but mm. most memorably in pursuit of happiness. Have you guys ever had moments in games like that where you've been so immersed that you did something to help your character,
2: help the group, even though it didn't make sense? Well, so so this is a, a type of game I don't think we've talked about yet, but this is where I've had those moments the most, and that is in games with goofy themes, uh, so like light-hearted games. Now, usually the choices I'm making aren't necessarily like realistic to a character, but they are fun and within kind of like the... Ridiculous character I've created. It's my favorite game. This is going way back. I don't know if i of you have played this, but uh, have any of you ever played Junta? No. It's a game in a sort of like Banana Republic type setting, and you're all trying to become El Presidente and steal like the relief money being sent by the UN. And it's a take that game. I think take that silly games lend themselves the most to this because. You get grudges, you know, and that's sort of part of your character. Like, I hate Peter, and I'm going to destroy Peter in any way I possibly can, even if it loses me the game. Right. Um, So, Junta, this was not me, it was another player, but my good friend Ben, he, he had decided that we were best friends from back in the day, and that, like, my my mother was married to his, like, cousin, you know, or something like that. Like, so we had, like, all these familial connections. We had been, like, telling stories back and forth. And we'd be like, oh, yes, I remember in, in 29 when you took that bullet for me. So so at some point in the game, totally breaking the rules of the game, so I'm not encouraging this, but he, uh, <laughs> I just felt him tapping on my leg. And I'm like, what are you doing, man? Why are you tapping on my leg, man? And then, like, I felt something brush against my leg. And I, I reached down with my hand, and there was a giant, Wad of cash because this is a hidden like money game and like the person with the most money wins. So he literally handed me like all the money he collected for the entire game except for a thousand dollars and he like winks at me and <laughs> I take it and and I won and everyone's like wait you have you have a hundred thousand dollars but you have two thousand dollars what and, um, you know, again, speaking of memorable games, like we, we played that sort of theme the entire time he made choices that totally lost in the game to play within the theme. And that is one of my top gaming moments of all time. Um, and th- oh, gosh, I was playing that. That was a game I played in high school. So this is like something I remember from 17 years ago, you know, or 20 years ago. And it still sticks. It's per- crystal clear in my mind. It's one of my favorite memories of all time in gaming. So, yeah, I think, like, take that and silly games. Like, Cash and Guns is a similar another one where, like, we'll just be ridiculous. Like, we'll, we'll put on accents. We'll, like, do crazy things. We'll point our guns at people for no reason. So I think, like, kind of goofy themes. I'm sure Munchkin is similar, too. People probably have crazy stories with Munchkin games. I think uh, that stuff can lend itself in a very different way. Like, maybe not the, the serious story a lot of these games create, but a, a fun, memorable story nonetheless. Have you had this happen to you, Peter, when, when you did something on behalf of your character or, or just... I think role-playing, more than anything,
0: oh, yeah. leads to that. And, I mean, I think we can, as game designers, take some cues from the role-playing world in the fact that you want people to feel like their character. Mm-hmm. You want people making decisions as if they were their character. You want them to feel the consequences as if they're their character. And this isn't a cooperative game, but one of my favorite games of all time is Blood Bowl. And the thing I love about blood bowl and i can still remember these moments is at the end of the game you have a choice to do the thing that is best for winning that game or best for building your team in the long run and so that's why it's a game that i always go back to and i always will go back to not only does your team progress each team has its own personality and teams players on your team will get stronger Or they may just die. So you may lose your best character. And you'll never forget those moments. Especially if it's like turn 16 and there are 16 turns in the game. Of a game that you had already won. And your guy was laying on the ground. And he pummels them with like 10 guys. He comes over and they foul him. And you lose your best character. That is something you will never forget. And that's why I guess it always comes back to this emotional tie to me. You have an emotional tie to these characters. And when something gets ripped away like that you don't forget it, both positive and negative. It it can happen in, in both ways. And I think it is our job as designers to create those emotional bonds to these cardboard pieces that we're making in front of us and then give people either joyous moments, think about watching a movie, too. Like, at the end of all these movies, you have moments of such joy. And I've certainly got that. I mean, we actually have a film of people playing Salvation Road online where they won, <laughs> they, flipped, they were flipping over the cards. And, I mean, it's it's on our YouTube channel, which doesn't have barely anything on it. But, like, you know, we have <laughs> I forgot we ten- had a
2: YouTube channel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we have this 10-second clip of people just at the end of the game, like the amount of nerves and things that came out as they were so nervous. Are they going to get exactly what they need at the end? And they did. And it was this just jump up moment of sheer elation. And you know, those people are never going to forget that moment for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And as a designer, there's no better feeling than knowing that you created that moment for those people.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, this is going a little bit long for our episode. So we'll, I think, end it here but jamie so amazing to have you on the show i would love to have you on again uh, if we can make it work out down the line especially as your your cooperative game uh, your first big endeavor comes together I'd, I'd love to
1: yeah this is great chatting with you guys and i i look forward to seeing sounds like you have a bunch of games coming out over the next year or so so i, I look forward to playing them
2: yeah we're pretty happy about all of them so far <laughs> we'll see how it goes yeah ja- jamie what should people check out uh from stonemire what's uh what's kind of the i know you said uh the gen con release for uh the next side expansion what what else is coming down the line that you can share
1: i mean that's probably the best thing to mention because that's uh it's it's a it's a campaign expansion um that can also be just be played modularly. so if you don't have a group that gets together on a regular basis you can just take all the different modules and mix and match but the heart of it is the is the campaign there's a lot of written story that you can read but it's it's optional Hmm. and it there are decisions that you make they're like split paths like after the first scenario you as a group will make a decision that will determine a completely different scenario uh 2a or 2b for the next one and that happens later on in the campaign too so there's there's a lot of narrative in that campaign and i'm i'm really excited to see um the stories that emerge from it when people play it
0: that's awesome now, is that 100% cooperative? I know you said there's cooperative mode. Is it 100% cooperative or is that just one of the modules?
1: The, the campaign is 100% competitive, and then there's a okay. separate module that we at one point I tried to force it into the campaign like I did with Charterstone, but then I just realized yeah. it wasn't working because people played side to be competitive. So it's a separate thing that you can, you can play as whenever you want the, the competitive well, cool. or the cooperative module.
0: Awesome. Well, maybe we'll be talking about that uh, sometime down the line. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Cool. Well, Jamie, thanks again so much. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, the hub of everything I do is on stonemaiergames.com. So if you want to read
1: about crowdfunding and entrepreneurship or, or games that we're making or, or my YouTube
0: channel about game design, it's, it's all there. Awesome. And definitely check it out. He has a lot of great content. Oh, thanks.
2: All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Ch- check out Colin and Steve next week, and we'll, we'll see you in a few.
0: Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-OpCast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Faith. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter, at MVPboardgames, or email us at mvpboardgames at
2: gmail.com.
0: Is that similar to how you guys view it?
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Sort of the... Oh, what was the term? Uh, I know Tom Vassell uses a lot when describing, like, Duel of Ages. Um, well, I can't remember, but yes.
1: <laughs> through permanent decisions, through, like, naming people that they encounter along the
2: way, mm-hmm. um, and by... <laughs> <laughs> putting, uh... Oh, God. R- R- Rami never to share my Charterstone character names with you. <laughs> well, you They're all, shame. like, derivations of the exact same name oh, yeah. and, uh, like, the bigger and the smaller and that That's kind rubbish. of thing. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a terrible namer, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but but sorry, I interrupted you. Continue. <laughs> By the way, near the end of the design discussion, I finally remembered the term I was trying to remember emergent narrative it emerges from the gameplay emergent narrative <laughs> there we go so hey there you go peter you can edit that in uh, you know like half an hour ago <laughs> or whatever <laughs> or it's gonna be where it belongs in the outtakes <laughs>
0: uh, I, I always fill those things up <laughs> goodbye and don't forget to immerse people in your game